there's one theme that underlies every Dharma talk that's ever been given, and that's the theme of the Four Noble Truths. And you'll hear it in many, many variations depending on the emphasis of the talk. Tonight I'd like to do a bare-bones Four Noble Truth talk and um, just begin by saying that the reason they're even called truths is because these are realizations that are universal. They're not just particular to Buddhism or to a certain Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Rather, they're what we realize as we pay more and more attention. Um, Yet I find for myself it's really useful just to reflect in a deep way on each portion of them as a way of bringing me back to what I already know or to deepen that knowing. So it's in, in that spirit and I'd like to begin with a bit on the myth of the Buddha's awakening because the reason this is one of the great myths through the centuries is because there's certain motifs of transformation, of awakening, of beginning in that kind of prison of in some way being stuck, feeling small, being asleep, and then moving into that wakefulness that recognizes who we are and what this life is about. So just to look at the pieces of the Buddha's life, or at least the first portion of his life, and see where it, where it seems true to us in our own paths. He was born 2,500 years ago at Prince Siddhartha in a small town in northern India. And as many of you might know, his early years were uh, ones where he was quite protected. He lived a charmed life. and. Um, you know, dancing women and music and beautiful fruit-bearing trees year-round. And this is, in some ways, this might not be akin to your early childhood, but (laughs) they're parallels, so keep listening. (laughs) The idea that comes through when you learn about the Buddha's early days is that in some way his family was trying to protect him from the harsh realities. So it was denial. In other words, they created these pleasure palaces in this extremely lush world so that he couldn't see the pain and suffering of the world. So, as in our own lives, our parents might not bring us up in a charmed existence, but there's in some way um, a container that stops us from really seeing what's difficult, what's painful, seeing our mortality. Then, step two in the Buddha's life, reality broke through. And for the Buddha, it was in the form of four heavenly messengers. His charioteer, Chana, took him out for these rides and outside of the palace grounds. And during those rides, in the course of, over the course of time, the Buddha was exposed to a man that was very, very old, a man that was very, very sick, a corpse, these are the three, and then to a renunciate who was seeking happiness and truth. So reality broke through. He got to see suffering, and so it is in each of our lives that sooner or later we're betrayed. Sooner or later we face disappointment that our idea about what life was supposed to be and what we really wanted um, doesn't match up with what's really happening. We get abused, we get wounded. Reality breaks through. The next for the Buddha was after seeing the truth of suffering and realizing that these pleasure palaces were indeed temporary and that there was more to life, he became motivated to seek truth to go out and find out what was up in some way to uh, find the path. And he spent six years um, doing all sorts of really wild austerities. So he became so so thin that you could see his backbone from the front of his body and he, you know, slept on beds of nails, that, that kind of thing. Really intense stuff. There were deprivations. He went to war with himself. So what happens to us when we get disappointed or realize that life isn't the way we thought it 
and we aren't who we thought we were. We take on these projects to improve or become better or find things out. We go to grad school or we work out or go on major fasts or diets or do therapy or something. But we do these self-improvement projects because we realize we have to do something. And um, there's sincere but sometimes misguided strivings, just like the Buddhist, because he did all these austerities. And where did it land him up? Pretty sick. In his life, the next thing that happened was that he, in his sickness, was on the side of a river, bank of a river, and he fell asleep and he had a dream. And his dream was of a time, you know, way in the past where he was out in nature under one of his father's rose apple trees, and he absolutely let go. He relaxed. He just let life be. And he saw the cycles of life. He saw an insect being crushed, and he saw the leaves and sprouts of things coming up, and he saw life and death, but there was a sense of letting be, not struggling against. Okay, so this is grace. This is that kind of piercing through all our strivings, and it happens to us too. We do our projects of trying to become better people and working real hard on ourselves. And then, and it's grace in a way, somewhere there's like a pause or a gap where we just let go a bit and discover that in letting go, everything we are searching for becomes right there. So there's this quality of of non-doing, non-striving, of trusting the process. And it happens sometimes because we're in nature and we just become a part of it or we're with somebody that allows us to feel safe enough that we just drop the persona some and find out it feels delicious. So grace. After the Buddha had that dream and realized the folly, really, of struggling so hard to try to be enlightened, realized that really the pathway was more to do with a wakeful kind of non-doing, he sat under the Bodhi tree and decided he would just sit there and practice this, this kind of wakeful presence. And so he did, and he practiced, and he stayed up all night, as they say, paying attention with fullness of heart and mind, not struggling, not striving. In the morning he reached and touched the earth in prayer, feeling his connectedness to all of life. And it said it was in that way that the Buddha woke up, became the Buddha, the awakened one. And so here we are now, and this is our version of the Bodhi tree. It's one of our Bodhi trees. We come together and we sit, and then in many ways through our day and our life, we intentionally bring a quality of wakefulness, of presence, to see what's true, to open our hearts. Now, the question is, what is it that the Buddha realized in his awakening? Now, what are these truths that he realized? And these are the, it's the same truths that we come upon. There's a phrase, ehi pasiko, which is, come and see. The Buddha again and again said, okay, here's what I realized, but don't believe me. <laughs> You have to look for yourself. And so it is that we practice, we hear the noble truths, but mostly we just pay attention to our experience. Because Buddha nature is not out there somewhere. If, if there's such a thing as a Buddha, it's the nature that's waking up in all of us. Each one of us has this capacity to wake up and to realize what's true. So as we talk, just to sense, do these truths resonate for you? Now we start with a contemporary day experience to look at the noble truths. Um, Just to ask you, how many of you were directly affected by the blackout, the power blackout? Can I see by hands? (laughs) Wow. They were right in their percentages. Okay. How many of you, and be honest now, were bothered in some way, to some degree? Hands? I like your honesty. (laughs) Good. 
how many of you, including those that were bothered, found that somewhere in the midst, even though it was happening, you made peace with an aspect of it or you came to some sense of presence or okayness with what was going on? Can I see by hands? Okay. How many of you in some way used your practice of mindfulness or acceptance or paying attention to find some balance in it? Can I see by hands again? Okay. The first of the noble truths is that discomfort exists. <laughs> that it just happens. It, that if you're embodied, if you're on this planet, stuff happens. You know, power goes out. These lives come and they go. Everything that we love, we lose at some point. There's a million inconveniences because life does not go the way we planned or wanted. So the first of the Buddhist noble truths was blackouts happen or dukkha, difficulties happen. The second is the cause of suffering, which is that blackouts happen and it's our conditioning to get bothered. We react. We're wired that way. That's the cause of our suffering. It's not that where power went, the cause of our suffering is that we don't have a peace with that, that we react, build up a drama around it. The third of the noble truths, that freedom is possible, that even given all that, it's our capacity to find some peace in the midst of it, to even kind of like the fact that things either quiet down or that we have to resort to candles and fireplaces and things like that, to find, to find the good, to find some ease. And then the fourth of the noble truths is that we can cultivate those capacities to become at ease, to be more free. I'll mostly be talking about the first three truths so tonight. So this first one, the word dukkha, this is the Pali word, means unsatisfactoriness. You know, it means discomfort, that it's the nature of existence that there's discomforts that there's pain, that there's pleasure, and that we can't control it. We can see it when we actually think of nature itself, that there's, you know, earthquakes and tornadoes and enormous heat and enormous cold. This is Pema Chodron. She says, this, this first truth includes the discomforts of how fiery fire can be, the turbulence of water, the wildness of wind, the upheaval of earth, and also the cool and soothing of water, gentleness of breeze, the solid dependability of earth, the warmth of fire. We, made of the elements, change also like the seasons. So it's part of our nature that these changing experiences of pleasant and unpleasant and intense and not so intense happen. Now we can see it really personally. I mean, just think of today. There were times probably for each one of us where our bodies got uncomfortable, especially in this mostly over 35 crowd, (laughs) right? Where our moods, if not today, in the last few days, where our moods really bothered by things, mental pain. We have a basic mental discomfort because of insecurity, because we can't control what's happening, because these bodies are aging, because we get sick, because we die. This is the given of being embodied. So there's the level of personal discomforts that we experience every day, and that we experience in big ways at certain junctures of our life. Then there's the dukkha or the dissatisfaction that's actually more of a kind of existential one. It's more subtle. There's a sense of just being incomplete. It's that feeling of waiting for something to happen, waiting for the future to happen so that you can really live your life, that there's something kind of missing right now. It's that sense of being on our way to the real thing, or for some of us it's already happened and it's just downhill from here kind of thing. This is Basho. Though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. You understand? 
there's that vague dissatisfaction that it's not all right here and it's not enough, that things are not okay. So there's the personal dukkha of these bodies that keep moving around to try to get more comfortable, that experience natural cycles of fatigue, that age, that get old, that die. There's the existential, more subtle one of just something's not quite right feeling. Then there's the dukkha that we see if we open our eyes and look around the world at what's happening everywhere. One friend here was just describing, she had just been in Haiti and how it just wakes you up when you see such a concentration of pain. In Kosovo, what's happening, it's just, it's unimaginable. There are wars in so many places. Natural disasters this year, you know, the hurricanes and the fires, earthquakes. I mean, millions of people homeless, tens of thousands died. In 50 or 60 countries right now, according to Amnesty International, people are still being tortured just for their political beliefs, for their spiritual beliefs. And then the millions that live in war zones just because they're living in cities. The threat of stray bullets. So there's that level of dukkha. And then the dukkha of what's happening to this earth, which we all can sense sometimes more immediately, sometimes not of different species dying and knowing the coral reefs are going and the amount of trees that are being taken down. And we make these efforts to buy coffee that's grown in the shade because all these songbirds and fantastic creatures of different species are almost gone that we can't drink the water. So it's hard to face. We we don't want to think about or talk about what uh, Clarissa Estes describes as the not beautiful. You know, we, we really don't want to face it. We would like to rather stay in the pleasure palaces or in denial and and not look so much. Deny the greenhouse effect and the way that human greed is really violating this earth. Really, really doing it. So we put our elderly and old age homes and um, just build these beltways around the inner city so we don't have to see the ugliness of ghettos. Our TV commercials, we avoid aging by having all these young smiling faces on our TV commercials. We don't want to see it so much. We dress our corpses as if they're going to a party, you know? I love uh, the way Alan Watts describes it. He says, it's like winding your watch on the way to the gallows. So in the Buddhist time, there's a story of a woman that went to him for help and she brought a child, her child that had just died. And she asked him to bring her child back to life. And the Buddha responded, well, first bring me a mustard seed from any house that has not known death. So the woman went from house to house and she had her dead baby in her arms and they all said, oh, sure, we'll give you a mustard seed. But then when she asked them about their house, they said, oh, yeah, well, our mother just died or brother or aunt. There was not one house that didn't know death. So finally, it dawned on her that what had happened was extraordinarily painful, but a universal part of life. And she went back to the Buddha and said, I see, I see, and mourned her loss and let go. I was remembering the first retreat that I went to, the first Buddhist retreat, Somewhere in the second or third day, there was a talk about dukkha and the noble truths and how universal it is. And just, just the sense that it, if you're in a body, they're suffering. And it was the high point of the retreat for me. And I'm not a morbid person necessarily, but this talking about how, yeah, everybody experiences suffering. It's the human condition. And it was like this great relief, you know, because I had been, you know, in my, as a teenager and in my 20s, 
you know, major roller coaster of, you know, depression and anxiety and not wall-to-wall misery, but secret suffering. I didn't, you know, I put on a good face, but it was hard. So I had this sense that something was really wrong with me personally, and it, it kind of took that personal wrong sense out of the fact that we're all vulnerable. We're all insecure. We all want to be loved. We're afraid something's going to be taken from us. We're afraid that we can't handle what's around the corner, that the big thing in life that's about to hit us is just going to be too much. So this is the first noble truth, that we all experience this quality of insecurity. The Buddha said, there's one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound, entangled, and that is the not seeing of suffering. If we live our lives to look away, to not face, it keeps us entangled, it keeps us suffering. So the first truth is understanding this by looking at it, by being willing to look. The second noble truth, which emerges out of that looking, is a seeing and a realizing of the cause of suffering. That the weather changes, and sometimes it's difficult and painful, but what causes suffering? The way the Buddha described it, we have this misunderstanding that we're separate, that we're a separate entity that doesn't belong, that isn't whole, that isn't really connected and part of the whole. And out of that feeling of separateness, we continuously have to defend ourselves from what's going to go wrong and try to grasp onto things to secure us, to give us more of a sense of completion or fullness. So we grasp and we resist and grasp and resist. This is Pema Chodron again. She describes the discomforts of the intensity of the weather. And she says, when we resist, when we think there's a problem because the fire's too hot or the winds are too wild, the vitality of life is hindered. The reality of life is twisted. Living becomes filled with suffering. When we resist how it is, We recreate ourselves, we dig our heels in, we become solid, removed from the flow of the river, making a defended little pool on the side with unmoving, stagnant water. Now, this is the plight that happens when we try to control our experience. The given is that we're all insecure and that the weather keeps changing. The suffering comes because we're trying so hard to protect ourselves from what seems bad and to make sure we get more pleasure. We hold on tight. And we do this in a bunch of different ways and I think it's useful to look at them so we can start seeing how we can create our suffering, how we control ourselves into this tight little knot that can enjoy the moment. One big arena that we're controlling in is sense desire. We have an attachment to more that's pleasant, less that's painful, pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, pleasant images. We we try to keep our, our senses pleased in this way. And we do a lot in our day, if you look closely, to make things filled with pleasantness. Out in California, they describe the, the perfect Marin day. <laughs> this is an example of lining it up where you get a good exercise and then a good gourmet vegetarian meal and fun, inspiring spiritual conversation and then the hot tub, then sex, then maybe a video, then ice cream, then a good night's sleep and you get up and start with your double cappuccino and then start the whole thing all over, you know. Not here, of course, just Marin. <laughs> but you get the idea. There's this... Uh, pursuit of pleasure, which we don't always do so directly. We do it indirectly. We hitch our sense of what will bring us happiness to things and then get tied up in knots seeking them. I saw this today in the paper. It's called Future Call-In Advice Show. And this woman's answering 
this is the question. I just found out my wife had me cloned last year and has been seeing me behind my back. <laughs> is she cheating on me? <laughs> so they change their shapes, what, you know, what pleasures we seek and the ways we go about getting them. An older man is walking down the street one day when a frog jumps up on his arms and says, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess and do whatever you want. The man sticks the frog in his pocket and walks on. After a few more blocks, the frog croaks, hey, don't you want to kiss me so I'll turn into your beautiful princess? The man, an elderly man, says, at this stage of life, I'd rather have a talking frog. This goes to say that our attachments change, but they still carry weight. And sometimes they get us into deep difficulty because we can get attached to using certain substances to bring temporary pleasure and get addicted. And in some way we get addicted to whatever we're using to get pleasure because it's so temporary we need to have it again and again. And in a moment that we're seeking pleasure, We're not here, open, present, experiencing what's going on. And how many moments of our day are we on our way to something? Sometimes it gets us into deep trouble. Sometimes it just creates a mess. And this is a story of that second type. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He wasn't going to give up on what he wanted. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry secured st- securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. <laughs> he anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite, loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to the Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 feet or so. Instead, he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from a cannon. (laughs) He didn't climb. He didn't level at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. (laughs) At that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons, lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there drifting, cold and frightened, for more than 14 hours. Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of Los Angeles International Airport. A United pilot first spotted Larry. (laughs) He radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. (laughs) Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. (laughs) LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling and the offshore breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea with the helicopter in hot pursuit. Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. Finally, the helicopter ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD for violating LAX airspace. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. 
Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. (laughs) We don't all go to such lengths in an obvious way in pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And yet if we look in a very close-up way to any day of our life and inspect what's compelling us, we are moving away from what's uncomfortable and towards what's more comfortable on some level. So one level of this striving and resisting is around sense pleasure. Another is the attachment we have to ideas and to opinions, this need to be right, to affirm our worldview. And people kill for it. People kill for their views. Oklahoma City and the Omnibomber, we get attached to how it all is. You know, there's that saying that the world is divided into people who think they're right. That's all. (laughs) But you understand, right? I had a meeting um, a couple of years ago with uh, most of the Vipassana teachers around the world, and we we're all having these dialogues about different ways to teach and so on. And of course, as you know, this the, one of the big understandings in the Buddhist um, psychology is that there's no self, you know, in there. It's just, it's, it's, we're empty of self. And yet to see these Vipassana teachers holding forth with their opinions on when to introduce no self into a teaching curriculum was amazing. It's we get very attached to our ideas, and that's even when they separate us. We get attached to very limited ideas about who we are, even when it creates a lot of pain. In New York's garment district, a little old man was hit by a car. While waiting for an ambulance, the policeman tucked a blanket under the guy's chin and asked, are you comfortable? The man said, I make a nice living. So we have these ideas that define the world, that keep us small, and that we're invested in. Ideas about spiritual life. Most people describe old students as the ones that are most difficult to work with because they've got these very solidified, crusty ideas about how it all is and what one does to become enlightened, and there's not that freshness and that inquiry of beginner's mind. So attachment to sense desire, to ideas. Then there's attachment to self, to promoting and extending and protecting this sense of who we are. One of uh, my friends, another Dharma teacher, has also been directing hospices for quite a while, and he described how uh, some years ago a woman of 96 entered the hospice and went over to his desk and looked him in the eye and said, why me? You know? And it's sad because we have this sense like we're not supposed to die. We have the sense like this, it's an insult to this self of ours. So the root of suffering and violence is being caught in this separateness and spending our day with this agenda of protecting the separate self and striving and finding, trying to find pleasure and avoid pain. And the second noble truth is to the extent that we resist the flow, resist this changing weather of experience, we suffer. That's dukkha. Now the third of the noble truths is that freedom is possible that it's our conditioning to be reactive, it's our conditioning to suffer, and it's built into our nature to wake up, to touch freedom. The classic phrase is, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And we start to see this more and more, because pain keeps happening. You can be practicing and practicing and very, very awake and very free, and pain keeps happening. Discomfort keeps happening, but there's more freedom in relating. So this freedom is discovered when instead of reacting, instead of pushing away what's going on, instead of judging, we pause. This freedom is discovered in the moments where there's a gap, 
where we don't resume our role of trying to act on behalf of a self or push away things. It's like the Buddha, after years of austerity, having that dream and remembering the time under the rose apple tree. It's when we stop controlling things so much. Freedom happens in the moment that we just say, okay, drop it. And dropping it doesn't mean pushing away what's going on. It means kind of dropping into what's happening, living the moment fully, living the life of this moment with a choiceless awareness, a full presence. I love this line, letting go does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. Experiences arise, like waves, they take shape. Sounds in this room, the plane way above, this class, and it's all gonna be history, it goes away. Can we bring that freedom of open-hearted presence and not try to hold on, not try to get rid of, but live the moments fully. If you will, just to reflect on what you might consider moments of freedom in the last day or two days or week. Were there moments of simply resting in what was? Moments where there was a sense of enough, just this, where you weren't leaning into the future, where you weren't fighting with what was happening, just letting be. This freedom expresses itself in that sense of really allowing life just as is. It expresses itself in a kind of realization of how it all is, sensing that it's just plain changing. There's nothing we can hold on to. We try, but there's nothing we can hold on to. When we realize that, we just let go some. The Buddha described this freedom in terms of a real transformation in our sense of who we are that we go from feeling like a separate self that is committed to trying to have more of this and less of that and control our environment and control our inner life, we shift from that into this open awareness that sees the dance, the dance is playing out, but doesn't need to control, rather holds with a sense of love and care and appreciation this very life. This is from Rumi. This is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly, he wakes up, call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him, and he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. This is the preciousness of dharma, of the path, that it's not becoming somebody different. It's waking up to this very natural connectedness where we care about each other not because it's a morally right thing to do, but because we are each other. We share the same vulnerabilities and the same longing to live and to love. We belong to the whole. Kalu Rinpoche says, you live an illusion in the appearance of things. You think it's separate self. You think we're separate and disconnected. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you see it, you will discover that you are no thing. And being no thing, you are everything. That is all. You are no thing that when we honestly look at our experience, Who are you? There's not a thing inside we can point to. We're a changing flow, 
of sensations and images and sounds, a flow-through of experiencing, as Joanna Macy says. We're no thing. Why reduce ourselves to thinghood? A stream of experience. And we're everything because we belong to the entire web of existence, the whole orchard. The discovery of this freedom is a process of again and again letting go of how we're thinking about it, of the thoughts that we're identified with, of the tightness in our body. It's relaxing wakefully again and again into how it all is. This moment, letting your weight down, dropping ideas, just opening to the peace, to the freedom of reality that's not resisted, just becoming that reality, becoming at home. We begin to learn that not controlling wakes us up to this truth. We begin to learn to come home into our moments. And this is the freedom that the Buddha's life story pointed to. This opening from this prison of a small self that's habituated, that gets caught in the superficialities, that thinks, oh, I'm doing this so I can do that, so I can get that degree or that recognition or the right partner or lose weight and all our projects to opening out of that and remembering what really matters. Remembering the freedom of facing and touching this moment with immediacy, with an open heart. Thomas Merton went and visited these uh, Palanarua, these statues of the Buddha, and they're carved into these hundred-foot high cliffs, supposedly very spectacular. And he said it was the most compelling art that he had ever seen. And um, the way you, he said it's alive in some way, and you walk towards them over this grass and bare feet. This is what he described. He said, the silence of these extraordinary faces, great smiles, huge, peaceful, subtle, filled with every possibility, rejecting nothing. The peace, not of emotional resignation, but of emptiness that has seen through every question, allowed everything, without trying to discredit any one idea or thing, without refutation, without establishing some other argument. The extraordinary thing about all this is that there is no puzzle, no problem. All of life is clear and complete. Everything appears in emptiness and everything is compassion. Imagine that, to sit here and reject nothing. Really, to just in some way say yes to how it all is and open our hearts and minds in that quite radical way. This is the Buddha's message that this conditioning in us exists. It's not a a thing where we're bad or wrong in any way. This conditioning to strive and to grasp and to resist and to fight and defend. And this capacity to begin to recognize this to begin to relax and in a wakeful way see what's happening, respond with kindness, with compassion. This is our capacity. And we discover this freedom in moments that we sit here and we just let it all drop. In moments that we're moving through our day that we go, ah, yeah, and feel the sensations in our body and just breathe and touch the moment. We can open through any of those moments, even when we're in our rushing through Aaron's persona or just getting up out of bed or sitting down to read the newspaper, just to pause. And there's an enormous power in getting familiar with even small moments of simplicity and freedom. And just small moments of recognizing, ah, this, enough, okay, just now.
There is something about the cultivation of faith when we see the cycles of these noble truths, when we see ourselves snagged and and caught in moods and pain and reactivity, and then something goes, oh yeah, that's what's happening. There's this kind of recognition. And we stop and we actually feel more fully rather than pushing away. And we remember this awareness that's bigger than the one who's struggling. It's the ocean remembering itself, that we're not just those waves, we include them. There's this faith that develops when we start seeing the cycling of the truths, and that more and more moments we sense the possibility of being free. So this leads us to the fourth truth. Freedom is possible. The fourth truth says, here's how. Here's how we can cultivate develop the qualities of of wakefulness through all our lives. And so the fourth noble truth has been called the Eightfold Path, and we won't go through it because it's quite a lot, but it includes the realms of inner intention and understanding, the realms of bringing mindfulness to every part of life, to our speech and our relationships and our work. And then the last two parts of it how to train our awareness in a very direct and powerful way so as to manifest freedom. And uh, next week's talk will really be on, on this training of awareness, back to the basics of how do we train meditative awareness to see what's true and to embrace with kindness our reality, to really open our hearts to what we see. So these are the four truths. Suffering exists. It's caused by this grasping and resisting of what's happening. Freedom is possible. And we can cultivate the capacity to be free in a daily practice, both formally as we sit and informally through all our activities. Take a moment, if you will, to come sitting up and we'll sit together Letting yourself arrive, having that quality of care and courage to simply be with what is, to not reject anything, to just soften into this moment, into the sensations, the mood, the sounds, the stream of experiencing. Unconditionally friendly towards our experience. Noticing tendencies to hold on to thoughts, to space out, without any judgment, just gently arriving again and again. Relaxed awareness, gentle presence, This poem is called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now.
We'll close with the sound current of OM. Rather than chanting three distinct OMs, just to begin to chant and when you run out of breath, begin again. Feeling free to harmonize and letting go into the sound current with an open heart. Inhaling deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.